Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. In his very gracious introduction, Jim mentioned that um, this whole interest in forced ranking began a couple of years ago when Jack Welch, in his final stockholders letter, made a statement that caught a great many people's attention. Here's what Jack Welch said in his final stockholders letter. He said, in every evaluation and reward system, we break our population down into three categories. The top 20%, the high-performing middle 70%, and the bottom 10%. The top 20% must be loved, nurtured, in the soul, and wallet, because they are the ones that make magic happen. Losing one of these people must be held up as a leadership sin, a real failing. He said the top 20%, the middle 70%, are not permanent labels. People move between them all the time. However... The bottom 10%, in our experience, tend to remain there. A company that bets its future on its people must remove that bottom 10% and keep removing it each year, always raising the bar and increasing the quality of its leadership. And Jack Welch wrapped up that statement in the annual shareholders report by saying, not removing that bottom 10% early in their careers is not only a management failure, but a false kindness as well. A form of cruelty, because invariably a new leader will come into the business and take out that bottom 10% right away, leaving them, sometimes midway through a career, stranded and having to start over somewhere else. Well, that was the start of national attention on a process that I've been familiar with for at least 30 years back when I worked for PepsiCo. At PepsiCo, we used forced ranking, and at that time, it was a quartiling system. Every year, the senior management group asked themselves the question in a rigorous way, who's our top 25%, next 25%, next 25%, bottom 25%. The process is a relative comparison. And in fact, the, the... the snowstorm that Jack Welch started with that uh, comment in his annual stockholders report continues on, and we see it in so many different areas. One week ago today, last Wednesday morning, to the minute I was sitting at my breakfast table reading the New York Times. Here's the New York Times from last Wednesday morning. The second section called Dining Out says, for Trader Joe's, a New York taste test. And those of you who haven't had the experience of going to the wonderful, specialized grocery store, Trader Joe's, Rinford Street, if and when they ever make it to Dallas. But in talking about their constant testing of products to bring unusual things into this unique grocery store, what I read was the vice president of distribution making a statement. 
the products that make it through find a loyal customer base. Excuse me. The products that find it onto the store but don't find a loyal customer base meet an implacable fate. It's like the General Electric under Jack Welch, said Mr. Sloan, the Vice President of Matt Merchandising. The bottom 10% is always rotated out. It's painful but necessary because it ensures that we are able to have new products for our customers to be interested in. So whether it's food products at Trader Joe's or whether it's people in large organizations, what we are talking about here is a management process that looks at relative contributions. And what I've done for all of you, and I think all of you should have it, I put together a little takeaway that uh, you might uh, glance at because I want to cover a lot of things. This, in effect, is the Cliff's Notes for the uh, book. And just having the Cliff's Notes certainly does not absolve you of the responsibility of buying the book. <laughs> but let's take a look at this business that is so controversial. And the controversy seems to be one-sided. For the last couple of years, almost everything that's been written on forced ranking tends to be hearing the voices of plaintiff's attorneys and disgruntled employees. And I wrote the book because, having had experience working with the system for 30 years, having helped finance implement systems that work, having seen the value of it, I felt it's time for the truth to be told. Well, let's start out. What is forced ranking? Forest ranking is a process that in companies that use it, and my best estimate is it is about 33, one-third to 40% of the Fortune 500 companies that use a forced ranking process. Every year, in addition to their conventional performance appraisal process, which virtually every organization uses, in addition to that, companies will use a forced ranking process, where typically the senior managers of the organization look over, not the in everyone in the company, but those in more serious, significant positions, the exempt employees, the management employees, the professional individual contributors, and using frequently that model that uh, Jack Welch proposed, that quite frankly I like as the default scheme, they ask the question, who is our top 20%, who is our vital 70%, and who is our bottom 10%. And the thing to recognize there is that this is a relative comparison. And there's a lot of confusion, I find, when people in organizations talk about this personnel process between what is called forced <coughs> distribution and forced ranking. Let me quickly just go over those. Uh, Force distribution. One of the problems that companies and universities, by the way, are having to a great extent is grade inflation. We're all familiar with Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon, where all the men are good-looking, all the women are strong, and all the children, each and every one, is what? Above average. And one of the reasons that Larry Summers, among others, was um, exited out of Harvard was he was putting the demands on Harvard faculty to get rid of grade inflation, to bring the truth into the grading process. Last year at Harvard, over 55% of all the students got A's. And Larry Summers was arguing this diminishes the value of a Harvard degree. Well, the same thing is happening in, in, in businesses 
that use performance appraisal because managers tend to be reluctant to have tough-minded conversations. It's much easier to call everyone superior and move on. So performance appraisal in many organizations simply isn't doing the job. And so organizations are looking to force ranking a relative comparison because performance appraisal is an absolute comparison. The question you're asking is, how good a job did George do against the goals and the expectations and the key job responsibilities? That is an absolute comparison. But unfortunately, if the manager's standards are low enough, and if the expectations aren't set that all that high, then everyone can be considered as exceeding expectations. That's relative comparison. One way that organizations try to combat that is through forced distribution, where they say, in performance of appraisal, only a maximum of 10% to be rated as distinguished, and a minimum of 3% must be rated as unsatisfactory. But that is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a forced ranking process, which is a relative comparison, not how good a job did George do against even his goals and objectives. The question here is, how good a job did George do compared with how well Mary and Bob and Sam did? So it is entirely possible for someone to be rated as superior in terms of his performance appraisal and yet be in the bottom 10% in comparison with others if he's on a team of all-stars. It seems to me that the easiest way to understand this difference between absolute comparison and relative comparison. Within the hour, all of us are going to be getting into our cars, we're going to be going up to our homes or us. We're going to get on the tollway. The speed limit on the tollway is 55 miles an hour. You'll be there driving 60. Question. Are you driving too fast? Yes or no? <laughs> well, I hear both of the answers and those are the two possibilities. On one hand, you can say on an absolute basis, absolute comparison, absolutely you are driving too fast. The speed limit is 55, you are driving 60, the cop can pull you over and give you a ticket for speed. On the other hand, as you're driving 60, there are people passing you left and right, shaking their fists, blowing their horns, because you're driving way too slow. And the cop can pull you over and give you a ticket for obstructing traffic. <laughs> On a relative basis, you're driving too slow. And those are two very different ways of looking at performance. And that's what force ranking does. It provides the information, not on an absolute basis. That's performance appraisals, John. On a relative basis. Now, there have been an enormous number of complaints, concerns, misconceptions about this. And I'd like to talk about some of the misconceptions, some of the concerns. You mentioned Enron. I think one of the worst is the Enron example of taking what is a very appropriate and legitimate process and, quite frankly, as they did in so many other places, corrupting it. But when forced ranking is used well, what happens is that the people who are involved in the ranking, the senior managers, in addition to looking at a person's performance and potential, asking how much runway and stretch does this person have, where is the talent compared to others in the organization, they'll also set up criteria. General Electric, for example, 
was known for its four E's. And everyone in the organization, when they did the rankings, they were asked about the four E's, the edge to make tough decisions, high energy level, the ability to energize others around common goals. The, the, these are the kinds of criteria. Another client that I work with wants everyone in the organization, when they do their forced ranking, what they ask is, in addition to the person's performance and potential, is this person a CAT, C-A-T? And that's their acronym for Customer Focus, Action Orientation, and Team Player. And one of the most common complaints about forced ranking, a misconception, is that forced ranking automatically creates a hyper-competitive, dog-eat-dog, Darwinian environment. <laughs> That's one of the most frequent complaints about the process. And it's one of the easiest to overcome. Because all you have to do is have a criterion in your forced ranking system, as this organization that I've worked with does, that says one of the criteria to be considered of an A player in this place is to be a team player. And that gets rid of that supposed hyper-competitive Darwinian environment. There are some other misconceptions about forced ranking that I think are worth just taking a look at. Whether or not you look at the little takeaway, let me just mention a couple of those. One misconception, when Time Magazine had their article about two years ago, big spread in Time Magazine and the title of the article was Rank and Yank. Isn't that ugly? Uh, the misconception tends to be that companies that use the forced ranking process automatically fire, as General Electric does, as uh, some other companies do, the bottom 10%. As PepsiCo used to do in the years that I was there, with the thought always being to ratchet up the overall talent of the organization. Andy Pearson, who was the president of PepsiCo at the time, was always talking about the importance of improving the quality of the herd. But quite frankly, firing the bottom 10%, although that gets a tremendous amount of attention, is actually quite unusual. Most organizations use a forced ranking process, an A, B, C player analysis. The C players, the bottom 10%, whatever that bottom group is, are not fired. They are probably advised, and one big semiconductor company that I've worked with, who does, and, and their process, process, they don't do, and they explain this very carefully, they don't do top 20, bottom 70, bottom 10. They do top 10, next 10, bottom 10. Well, it sounds the same to me. That's their process. But what they do with the bottom 10% is they advise people where they came out. And then they take no other action. What they found is that 40% of all the people who were designated as relative to others their C-pleasures, 40% immediately change, start improving their performance, and move out of that category. About 30% move internally to other jobs that they are better suited to handle. And about 30% decide that they should leave the company and get a fresh start somewhere else. And I think there is a certain degree of ethical obligation that we have to let people know where they stand. And I think Jack was right when he talked about the fact that it's not only a form of management cruelty, but it is a false kindness. 
because assessments of individuals are always being made. One of the things I do whenever I'm talking with people, and it's happened several times I've been at World Affairs Council meetings, I ask the same question. I remember, I forget who the speaker was, Jim, but I was sitting next to a man who was recently retired as, as an anesthesiologist. And I said to him, you've seen hundreds and hundreds of doctors in the course of your work. Does it seem to you that that model seems to make sense? That among doctors, there's about 20% who are just incredibly gifted. There's about 70% who really do a fine job. And there's about 10% who probably should have chosen another profession. And every time, whatever the field may be, with one exception, everyone seems to intuitively agree that there is about a top 20% of people, whatever the field, who are enormously gifted. There are about 70% who are good, solid players, and about 10% whose careers would be better for somewhere else. The exception is any time I talk to journalists about editors. <laughs> there the report comes back that it's 10% who are gifted, 20% who do a good job, and 70% who should have found employment somewhere else. Uh, I'll make no further comment on that. But some of the other key misconceptions. Another is that people who end up in the C category are necessarily poor performers. That's not true. What you're looking at is a relative basis. And I'm not a sports fan. Uh, I pay just about no attention to sports. But I understand in January there was a big football game, the Super Bowl. And help me with this. Uh, the, one team won. Who won the Super Bowl this year? Pittsburgh. The Pittsburgh Steelers. Okay. Now, next year, uh, sports is my thing. Make, make sure I'm, I'm on track with this analogy. But next year, the Pittsburgh Steelers are going to be back again when the season starts up in the fall. Are they going to have exactly the same roster, forgetting about retirements or injuries? Or over the course of the year, are they going to be looking at every member of that team and saying, can we get a better person in here? Are they going to be doing that? Of course they are. And these are the best in the world to be a C player on the Pittsburgh Steelers is to be a B player on another team and an A player somewhere else. It's a relative comparison basis, and the best are always looking to ratchet up the talent. Another misconception that, I'll, that I find very frequently is that there is the belief among managers that somehow, given the quality of talent that I've assembled here, forced ranking is inappropriate. Um... It was about a year ago. I was down in Houston giving a presentation at a large chemical company's annual management meeting. And I do a lot of this, and I was talking about forced ranking. And at the break, I had a couple of guys come up and talk to me. And there was this one man standing in front of me who was actually a little red in the face. And he said, this forced ranking this won't work for my team. I've got three people who work for me. And they are the equivalent of Newton... Galileo and Einstein. And his friend sitting right next to him said, don't listen to him. What he's really got is Larry, Curly, and Moe. <laughs> well, we may not have Newton and Galileo working for us. We probably don't have the three stooges. 
But what we do have is people who do vary in their talent. We do have people who vary in their potential. And I think it's an honorable and ethical thing for organizations, since we are always doing force ranking internally, to make that into a rigorous process where specific criteria are determined and managers have to deal with each other and battle it out and give examples so that it isn't done in conversations over the water cooler, but it's done in an environment where talent really has the chance to be noticed. So finally, before I turn it over to um, a couple of questions, is one of the biggest misconceptions of all, and that is, with all the talk and the newspaper articles, the Time magazines, and all the other stories about forced ranking, the belief seems to be, and it certainly was added to by the actual statement that Jack Welch made, is that the benefit to organizations comes in this forced ranking process from identifying the bottom 10%, who the bottom 10% are, who the seed players are. And that, frankly, is not true. It certainly is a benefit to know who, on a relative basis, are the seed players, who are not as strong as others. But that's not where the big payoff is. Consistently, what I find is where the great payoff to forced ranking comes is in identifying your eight players, your top talent, the people who really have the great capability so that you can focus development efforts on these folks so that you make sure that these are the people who are retained. There is a semiconductor company that I do a lot of work with that puts a lot of attention on its talent management process. And if you are a manager who has a top talent person among your work group, one who has been identified through their process, one of your managerial responsibilities is retention. And you know that the company is serious about that. Because if you're a manager with a top ten person, a top talent individual in your work group, and she resigns, on the day after she hands in her resignation, your phone's going to ring. And on the other end of the phone is going to be the president and CEO of the organization who's going to ask you one question. Why did you let her get away? You don't want to get that phone call. They take talent management very seriously. And so the benefit to doing a force-cracking process is not to identify the seed players and helps you move them out or up and improve the overall talent of the organization. It does that. But the great benefit is to the top players so that they do not go undiscovered. The great benefit comes to those folks in the middle who are assured as much as we can today of a solid and secure career. There is benefit to the people who are ranked in the bottom group. Because even though they may disagree, isn't it good to know if that's how you're seen as quickly as possible so you can either convince the decision makers that they were wrong or decide to get a press start somewhere else. But maybe the greatest benefit is the one that's never mentioned. And that is to the rankers 
the people who are actively involved in the ranking sessions, because having been through so many as both a participant and a facilitator, what I see is honorable people trying to make difficult decisions based on limited information about very important things. And when they concentrate their attention on focusing on talent, and what is it that makes talent around here, and what are our criteria for it, they walk out of that with a conviction that talent genuinely makes a difference. Well, let me pause at this point. I'd like to open it up for questions and then have a concluding remark. Uh, what things can I respond to in terms of this process of force ranking plates? Any chance this concept can be uh, introduced and implemented in the education community? In the education community. Well, the education community is a pretty big one. In any place where there are teachers' unions, no. Uh, teachers' unions are absolutely, as unions are, are absolutely opposed to any kind of relative comparison basis. The entire basis of union mentality is that employees are fungible commodities. They are absolutely interchangeable, and that's why the only uh, process there is uh, seniority. In academia, at, at more senior levels, there again is a great deal of resistance. I find that... Um, from my own experience, I spent 20 years as adjunct professor of management at the University of Dallas Graduate School and have done a lot of work in academia, that that is frankly, and I hope I'm offending no one here, of all institutions in our country, one of the most resistant to change, one of the most resistant to doing things in what seem to be more effective ways. Uh, we see the outcome of Larry Summers' work in trying to uh, get differentiation there at Harvard. Uh, so I think I'd much rather work with um, with the business corporation than trying to bring that into academia. Please, Nikki. The, the common theme has always been that you can ignore that top 10% because they're so good anyway. Focus your efforts on that middle group. Mm -hmm. you're, and I believe, you know, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. I'm in agreement with you. But why do we have a tendency to just ignore that distinguished top Layer. It's okay, that, that's an interesting observation, and what Nikki has said, in case uh, it didn't carry across the room, there is a tendency, and almost a belief, if I understood you, that it's okay to ignore our A players, because they're so good, they'll do things on their own. Where we really need to focus is on the B players motivating them up to A's. Uh, I have concern about that, and that is, uh, for the last three or four years, in our country, and I think it may have been as a result of 9-11, the amount of active recruitment, and the, the term in the business is poaching, of employees from one company to another, has not been very strong. That has changed. In the last year, highly talented people are under attack. They are targets for being recruited away. I think one of the biggest mistakes in any organization that we can make is first not to know who our top talent is, and fourth ranking can tell you that, and second, to not have solid retention programs in. And I think it's a leadership responsibility, not only to develop people, to make sure that our best are retained. And so my belief is that what we really need to do with our best, in addition to identifying them, is re-recruit them. Re-recruit them. These are the people who at one time decided that working for you and working for your company was the right thing for them. 
And what I ask leaders in any institution is what active steps are you taking right now to re-recruit your best? Because if you don't, they will be. Other things I can talk about before Spanky, please. Uh, the three E's that you mentioned, one of them was energize other, other team members. Yes. So that means you must have a personality that is communicative and you have interpersonal skills and that's not productivity or it's not getting the job done. Can you explain how that, those, those sort of softer skills, how they figure into the equation for the top performer and if I was in the middle, yes. how I would move up to the top with those skills. Okay. I know that's a complex question, but... It, it is, but there, there's no complex question that I think can't be amenable to a fairly simple answer. Um, and what I think is this. In the, in the last chart that you have in the book, it talks about the dual axis chart with performance and potential. That's a given. We want excellent performance. We want excellent potential. But there may be other criteria, too. General Electric, for example, uses the four E's. I only gave you three because I can only think of three. The edge to make good decisions, high energy level, the ability to energize others, and the ability to execute with excellence. There it is. Um, the, the, the other company I mentioned, in addition to performance potential, looks at customer focus, action orientation, team player. But the one you mentioned, the ability to energize others around common goals. It may be that you're a manager, and that's not an area of strength. That's, in fact, an area of deficiency. Uh, I just don't have the, the interpersonals, the soft skills, whatever it takes. I do my own job well. But energizing others is just not part of my makeup. And yet, the company is saying, and this is one of, I think, the best things about force ranking, it forces senior executives to identify what are the criteria that we feel are important? And if they're saying that to be a success here in this organization is the ability to energize others, and that's not one of your strengths, wouldn't you want to learn that as soon as possible? Because it may be that knowing that you say, I want to go into an individual contributor role where I don't have the responsibility for energizing others, where I can be much more of a success. That's how it comes out there. Please. Are there any tools or techniques we could be using to eliminate the problem before it becomes a problem? In other words, at the hiring process, are there some techniques we could be using that would uh, eliminate the bottom 10%? I believe there are. And I'd like you to think about this. Think about and, and, uh, the point about eliminating people before they even come in, I think is a critically important one. Think about all the people in your organization or all the people through your career that you've known who either got fired or should have been fired. Now, there are three factors that cause job success or failure. Those three factors, the first is can-can't. That's the capability question. Can-can't. Can the person do the job? Does the person have the skills? Does the person have the necessary experience? The second factor is will-won't, and that's the motivational factor. Will the person do the job? And that's independent of can-can. And the third is fit. The culture issue. Is this our kind of cat? 
Now, here's where the system, where the process, where our mental processes don't serve us well. Think about this. When managers and recruiters go out to hire people, when you go out to bring someone new into your organization, of those three factors, can, can, will, won't, and fit, which one, when we're interviewing and selecting, do we tend to concentrate on the most? Answer, can, can. Because that's easy. Where did you go to school? What did you study? What did you major in? Where have you worked before? What did you learn? What experience have you had? All those are can-can issues. And when you think about all the people who ever got fired or should have been, it's rarely because they couldn't do the job. It's because of will won't or fit factors. So what I would do is urge every organization, every recruiter, every, everyone you knew, when you're thinking about bringing in someone to the team, you know, check off can can, but your job's only be done at that point. What really is important is the will won't, and most important, the thing is this our kind of cat, not kind of organization. Any others? Please, Mario. Think when GE clears out their bottom ten percent. Yes. To some extent, done that force some of the middle seventy into the bottom ten percent. Yeah. Yeah, there's always the ratcheting up of the curve. And what happens is, and I'm sorry, I'm getting feedback, and it must be annoying for you because I'm hearing it, so I apologize for that. I've moved around, and I've cut this down. <coughs> but uh, what happens is, the goal is always to move the performance curve up. And so when you do, as many organizations do, is, is remove the bottom 10%. Uh, my argument would be that is, while painful, probably a long-term of blessing to them. But now the curve has <coughs> moved up. There was a very interesting study, and I mentioned it in the book. It came out just as the final chapters were going to press in my book. A study by Steve Scullin of Drake University, where he and his colleagues set up a mathematical simulation of 100 companies, of 100 people each, over a 30-year period, who every year did the ABC ranking and eliminated bottom 10%. Went out of the open marketplace and replaced them. And the next year did the same. And the next year did the same. And the next year did the same. And what we see is that it becomes progressively more difficult to do. Because as you're now going back into the marketplace, your talent is going up, the marketplace remains reasonably stable, it's hard to do that. And what Steve Scullin and his colleagues found, and I think they found it reluctantly, <coughs> was that it is possible to do. And the thing I've been arguing for years is don't think about this as a permanent. Don't think of this as a permanent personnel process. You get your biggest advantages. Can you hear me back there, okay? You get your biggest advantages in the first three to four years. So my, my recommendation to organizations, if you're thinking about seriously taking talent management into account, create the force ranking process, do it for a year. You'll probably be pleased with the results. Fine-tune it. Apply the learning. Do it a second year. And by the third year, think about whether we have gained all of the benefits that we, in fact, possibly can. Please. What, uh, when you're ranking one person against another, and you, I would think you'd want some fairly objective 
factors to consider in the yep. ranking. What do you have to say about that? What I have to say about this, this is the question that uh, always comes up about forced ranking, what is perceived as the inherent subjective nature of it. And my answer to that is to reach into my pocket, where one time, having been asked this question so much, I went to the dictionary, and I said, what does this word objective actually mean? And I printed it out. What does it mean to be objective? And what it says is this, over having to do with a material object. That's not what we're talking about. Having actual existence or reality. That's not what we're talking about. But listen to the third definition of objective. Uninfluenced by emotions or personal prejudices. For example, an objective critic. See synonyms at fair. Based on observable phenomena, and a person's job performance is observable, presented factually, and the example, an objective appraisal. We often, and this is true of, of many managers in organizations, we often fall into the myth of quantifiability. The myth that says unless we have a certain number of widgets to count, then somehow it is a, a subjective. That is not true. If managers have the examples of performance that they can provide, if they deal with it factually, if they deal with it without prejudice, then what you have is an objective assessment. We could keep talking, but let me wrap up with this. I first ran into forced ranking. The same way probably the a great many of you in this room do. <clears throat> on the recess, on the playground, in school, in fifth, sixth, seventh grade. When we would go out for recess and a softball game would come up and two kids were the team captains and one would throw the bat to the other and the other would grab. And then the first would put his hand around the bat. And the next might put two fingers there. And the next might put a hand and the next might put a hand until finally one of them was able to put his hand all the way over the top of the bat. And if he could swing it around his head three times, then he was able to be the first to choose the team member. And then they would go back and forth, choosing. And the first kid on my playground at Evergreen School was Pete List. He was always chosen first because he was a terrific athlete. And they choose back and forth. There were a couple kids who were always chosen first because they were great softball players. It was the great majority, and I was one of the great majority. And there were always some kids who were chosen last. And that hurt a little bit because these were our friends. But they weren't good softball players. And invariably, the last person chosen was Lee Barry. Well, run the clock ball. Pete List turned out to be the starting quarterback for Penn State. He was drafted by the NFL and spent three years as the backup quarterback for the Denver Broncos. An incredible athlete. Lee Varian, who was always the last he chose, ended up spending where he still is an entire career in the Department of Physics at MIT, and a couple of years ago was shortlisted for the Nobel Prize in Business. And Lee Varian is still a lot of softball. <laughs> <laughs> but what we're saying with Forrest Franking is, in this particular game, who are our peak lists? Who are our dick 
and who are our leaders. And in this particular game, here are the ABCs. But just because you may be a C as a softball player does not mean you may not be shortlisted for the Nobel Prize in Physics. Thank you so much, Jim, for having Thank me you. here. I'd love to say it's going to be so much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.